listening to the Quarter to Three Games podcast for mid-October 2016. My name is Tom Schick, and my game of the week is not Quartermaster General. Hi, I'm Johan uh, Nelman, and my game of the week is not Pandemic Legacy. Oh, you know, I, I want to change my answer. That's not my game of the week either. Do you Have you played through all of a season of Pandemic Legacy? Yeah, we played it. Uh, I don't know, it was a good experience, but... I mean, that's that season is all there is. Wait, did did you were you a fan of Pandemic before trying Legacy? No, but we've got a game group. We play a game once a week at lunchtime, and we like something that has a kind of campaign structure. Right, right. Because like, yeah, that way nobody wants to skip a week. And so, so you got all the you got all the way through a Legacy season then. Yeah, yeah. And you're done with it. I mean, maybe we'll be back for season two, but uh, you know that that game is wrapped up, and there's no point in ever doing anything with it right. again. So uh, I should warn the listeners, and not warn them, but I should let folks know this is going to be a board game heavy podcast, as they can tell, because later we'll be talking about Terra Mystica. Uh, but you also recently went to Essen, um, which is the yearly uh, big old board gaming conference in Germany, right? Yeah, or uh, so it's not a convention in the sense that you'd uh, think of something like origins like it, it's very much a trade fair like um the all the game makers and retailers and so on will be there and you can play games and so on but it's it's not a free gaming or organized gaming kind of uh, thing it is a here is our company here are some demo tables right if you're lucky you will get a seat here uh and, and, and can play the game did you uh, did you walk away having bought a lot of games? So I came with uh, I don't know six seven games, uh, which is kind of the exactly what fits into my luggage. Okay, right. Well, you say luggage, so one of the reasons you get to go, uh, you are in Switzerland, so it's probably what it's like a thirty minute drive to Essen. That's my guess. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Europe is not quite that small, uh, but but it's a one-hour flight, so it's uh, pretty easy. Right. Oh, oh so, so you actually, on an airplane, took six or seven board games. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I check it in. Sure, sure, yeah, but that's that's a suitcase full, I can imagine. Right, right. <laughs> uh, now, now, although you're in Switzerland, and I want to talk about this with you, Yuho, you are not Swiss, you are Finnish. Now, I have a question that I've asked a few Finnish folks, and I would be curious what your answer would be to this. Um, there are uh, lots of movies and TV that come out of other parts of Scandinavia, Denmark, Norway, uh, Sweden, especially especially uh, uh, Denmark. Um, what's going on in Finland? Why don't we also see a bunch of movies and TV shows out of Finland? Oh my God, that's a rough question, actually. Do you, do you sort of uh, um, like—is that from your perspective as well, or maybe that's just what it looks like where I sit in America? Like, I know there's a filmmaker. No, named, no, no, um, no that, that's fair. I mean, because I don't—I don't live in Finland, so I don't watch Finnish TV, but I do watch uh, Danish TV series, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah, I, I guess it's just—I uh, mean, part of it is uh, that. Danish and Swedish and so on, they will at least sound a little bit familiar to uh, all English speakers. Mm-hmm. Even if you can't understand, you at least understand the cadence and uh, so on. Oh, Finnish, the Finnish and, language is very different, you're saying? 
Uh, oh yeah, it's totally unrelated to uh, basically anything but Estonian. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I also think uh, one of the things that's been suggested, and I think this has been a little tongue-in-cheek, is that any Finnish movie or uh, TV would be just super bleak and really depressing. <laughs> you admit that that's true, but uh, I mean, at least about uh, all the famous Finnish movies like Kaurismäki and so on, they tend yeah. to be exactly that kind of stuff. But you know, the Danish stuff is not cheerful either. That is, so. <laughs> that is very true. I, there's no Lars von Trier romantic comedy that I can think of. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you actually moved from Finland to uh, Switzerland. Before we talk a little bit about Switzerland, because you and I have something in common. I used to live in Switzerland. Uh, oh, did you? Yep. Before we talk about that, though, I want to know what it was like growing up so far north. Were you actually north of the Arctic Circle? I was a little bit south, like uh, about 100 kilometers. But what? that's still the kind of... It's so far north that you maybe get... Uh, around Christmas, you get about an hour of daylight. Now, I, I, to me, just because I'm a night guy and I like staying up at night and working and I like this idea that everyone else is asleep and it's quiet outside, and uh, that would sound awesome to me. I would love the idea of 23 hours of darkness. I've never experienced it, but uh, what, what is that like? Oh, it's, it's so nice. Um, now, you might not like the summers, though, because then you're going to get your... Uh, essentially 23 hours of daylight and uh, an hour of dusk. Right, so, right. Um, but, you know, I grew up with that. And then I moved south. And by south, I mean like uh, somewhere north of uh, the southern end of uh, Alaska. <laughs> Still, and, uh, and, oh, my God, it was hard to adjust to uh, Helsinki because the days in the summer were just so short, like just... 20 hours of daylight. Good God. Now, what what does that do? Like, it must make the year seem very different, like a, a completely bifurcate, a year that is completely two separate halves. Like, like the, the, the cycle of, I, I live in Los Angeles and we don't have much by way of seasons. It's always very mild weather. And I miss living in places where there was a, a clearly delineated summer and fall and spring and winter. It must be completely different to have a cycle where, it's just how much daylight you get. Um, like you, there, there aren't seasons there. It's basically just a matter of how much light there is on any given day, right? Yeah, I mean, you still have seasons, of course. Uh, but yeah, so so the thing is that it creeps up on you so slowly. It just, I guess you just it, don't realize until oh, suddenly it is no longer out uh, lights out light outside when I need to go to school or something. I'm thinking about the idiom of the frog sitting in the pan of water that has the water turned on boiling and it doesn't realize that it's going to boil to death because the water only gradually gets hot. Like the frog doesn't realize the water is getting hot. It's probably the same with the amount of light that you guys have. Yeah, absolutely. Do, do you actually uh, miss, miss that? Like is that something that you recall fondly that you wish you you had again? Oh, I was so obnoxious when I moved, uh, moved south about complaining about the day cycle being all wrong. <laughs> Uh, so the place you grew up in Finland was called, say the name of it again for me. Oulu. Yeah, you're saying it exactly. When I asked you to spell it, it's O-U-L-U. <laughs> That's exactly what I, I would guess. Uh, <laughs> you said a large uh, city by Finnish standards, uh, but 150,000 sort of 
smallish for those of us who live like in a megalopolis like Los <laughs> Angeles. Uh, describe for me your city. Describe Olu for me. Uh, well, it was, I know, founded 300 or 400 years ago. It's next to a river, so it had a, a big power plant. Um, small enough that basically you were ever only one kilometer from the forest. Okay, maybe that's exaggerating a bit, but we were basically in the middle of a forest and that was three kilometers from the city center. Mm -hmm. What? Um, uh, go ahead, sorry. No, uh, you know, it was a great place. Uh, lots of libraries, um, a great university, stuff like that. Uh, when you were growing up, what is the worst trouble you got in as a kid? Oh, trouble like... Uh, you, you mean... Uh, well, just to give you an example, I'm, with... I'm thinking of, you know, kids can be little thugs. I once went with my friends to a train track and we shot bottle rockets at a, which are little fireworks, uh, at, at a passing no, train. No, I, uh, and the police I came out afterwards and we got, the, like the, uh, the sheriff came out, like apparently the train conductor called and said, somebody's shooting at me. And so a sheriff came out, we didn't get arrested, but we got in trouble for that. What kind of trouble <laughs> can kids in Olu get into? Yeah, so I never got into any trouble because I'm a, I'm a law-abiding citizen at heart, uh -huh. which is why I'm in Switzerland. Uh -huh. Rules need to be obeyed. <laughs> uh, all right, so I, I sense there are skeletons in your closet that you don't <laughs> Interesting. Uh, so, okay, so you moved to Switzerland. You're, you, you're, you said Zurich, is that right? Yeah. Uh, and that was a work thing, right? Yeah, so I uh, after I graduated, I thought, oh, I want to work abroad for a couple of years. But then I've been here for 10 or so. That's the way it goes. And uh, you said you worked previously for Google. What kind of company do you work for now? So, well, after Google, I went to do a technology startup with a few of my friends, which we just sold to a Canadian company. So now I'm working for the for, for those buyers. So I presume so, congratulations are in order if you sold a tech startup. That's that's awesome, isn't it? Uh, it wasn't. Uh, I mean, we were happy to sell, but. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not a billionaire. Right. Okay. Because I, but, but still, I mean, isn't that part of what you do with a tech startup is you start it up and you try to sell? I, I'm, I'm assuming that that was an important milestone for you. Yes. Well, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, we have sold us, oh, me and my friends had still sold a startup before, different friends, but, uh, you know, this was a more significant thing because we spent five years uh, building up this thing. Sure, so. sure. Well, congratulations on that. Uh, yeah, thank you. So uh, there in, uh, you said something about rules. So there in uh, Zurich, uh, describe now for me Zurich compared to Olu. Well, Zurich is also a really small city, actually. Like for a financial capital of, uh, well, one of the financial, financial capitals of Europe, it's like uh, half a million people or so. And uh, it doesn't look like a big city because it's built at a really low height. Uh, the Swiss people are seem to love going to bed early and waking up super early. <laughs> like uh, uh, the trams will start filling up at 6.30. Like that's uh, the start of rush hour, basically. Mm -hmm. um, 
let's see. And you mentioned Fridays are a little crazy. That's a, it's a party town, I think you said. Yeah, or, you know, parts of the city. It's very well cordoned off which parts are, uh, are the party town. Um, and then during winters, the city will just empty out during the weekends because people just go skiing. Which is something that you don't do. So what do you do on uh, when people are going skiing? What do you do for vacation? Well, vacation, I usually travel somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, for the weekends, it's usually games or uh, TV shows. Like I like binge watching stuff. Uh, good, because I want to talk to you about that in a second, because I'm curious what you're watching these days. But uh, So I there was apparently, I don't know, uh, when when I was five years old, my mother got a job. She was a nurse. She got some sort of work abroad job in Switzerland. Uh, and I don't remember it. I was five. And it, I mean, I have vague memories, but I'd had no sense for this idea that, hey, I'm, I'm in Europe. Cool. You know, it's kind of wasted on me. I was too young to appreciate it. But we lived in a place called, I think it was called Onenda. And I have no idea how it's spelled. I just remember my mother telling me the name of it. But and it was probably it was for less than a year. So, you and I both have lived in Switzerland. So there you go. Uh, didn't didn't do any skiing. Didn't do anything distinctly Swiss, as far as I remember. Uh, but as a little kid, I I do remember having my fifth birthday in Switzerland. So there. Uh, Did you at least get some uh, Swiss chocolates out of it? I I don't I probably uh, yeah like could you remember. What it, could you remember anything you got as a birthday gift when you were like five years old? I vaguely remember getting a truck with a moving conveyor belt on it. Uh, but do you remember like what's the first birthday gift you can remember getting? Birthday gifts, not so much. I do remember some Christmas gifts, I think, from about that age. Like uh, because we would always get this. There would be these mail order catalogs coming in, uh-huh. and uh, my younger sister and me, we would just pour over that and, you know, circle stuff and so on. And somehow, uh, my mother would exactly know what the actual stuff we wanted from there was. I, and I, I, I remember doing that too, Yuho, is getting a catalog, and the rule would be, you could only you could pick one thing from every page, and you could exactly we we did the same thing. <laughs> And you couldn't pick something somebody else picked. Like it had to be something different from what the other person picked. (laughs) Yes. So then what is something? Like what's an example of something that a roughly five-year-old Yuho might have gotten for uh, Christmas? Oh, I got this uh, portable office, like this little plastic suitcase that you opened up. And then it had this chintzy little office uh, paraphernalia inside it, like a phone and uh, um, some kind of (laughs) – yeah, no. Um, I have no idea why I wanted that thing. I, I just want to say, you know, that that of course you're in Zurich making tech startup companies. Like <laughs> a guy who got that when he was five years old. Sure. <laughs> uh, you also said you play guitar. Do you have the really cool calluses on your finger at the tips of your fingers? Are you that hardcore of a guitar player? I used to have. Now it's maybe once a week, so it's kind of. Can't maintain those anymore. Doesn't it? I actually don't know this. If you only play a guitar once a week, isn't it kind of painful then? Like to actually hold the strings down or no? Uh, You get used to it. Okay. I guess I'm not willing to suffer to play music at all. (laughs) Uh, We suffer for our art. There you go. Right. Okay. So speaking of art, what TV show – let me throw this at you. Is TV art? 
Of course it's art. Really? Okay. Now what? defend yourself. What if I said, no, it's not? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, beyond the lame, uh, everything is art. Because you, you now basically have to explain, Yuho, then, then you're basically saying that um, uh, dancing with the stars uh, is art. Uh, no, no, I'm not saying that. Okay, you're saying some TV I mean, is art. I'm, I'm saying all TV is art, okay. by no means. Okay. But I don't see why something like uh, Wire or The Americans or, I don't know, Good Wife, why those wouldn't be art, because okay. they are really... That obviously, these creative works that people have put a huge amount of uh, sweat and tears into. Right, right. Uh, I always deflect that conversation, not deflect, but uh, I sort of opt out of having to say that by saying it's not necessarily art, but it's entertainment. <laughs> like anything where I'm not comfortable defending the entire genre as art, I'll just say, no, that's entertainment. <laughs> but you are right. I mean, there, there's some amazing television out there, isn't there? And, and people keep telling me that The Wire is so good. I'm going to watch that one of these days. Uh, but yeah, I'm one of those guys who's never seen The Wire. Oh, is, my God. I know, I know. That's sad, isn't it? No, I, but I bet you tell a lot of people that you haven't seen The Wire, right? Well, sure, and I get because I write. I, I kind of feel like the more I bring it, like the more I get pestered for it, the more I will eventually sit down and watch it because I own it. Some some of the folks at Quarter to Three very graciously uh, pitched in and bought me the entire seasons of The Wire on DVD. So it's sitting out there in my living room right now. As soon as we stop recording, you know, I could go in there now and start watching The Wire, uh, but I just need I need to be pushed <laughs> enough, I guess. Uh, uh, all right, so what TV are you watching these days? What do you really like? So the most recent thing I watched the season of was uh, The Americans. Uh, do you know it? You know, isn't it? Is it something about – I've seen posters for it, and I know people have talked about it. I'm going to tell you what I think it's about, and you tell me how close I am. Uh, Russian spies living in America in the 50s. Almost right. In the 80s, and uh, they're kind of these deep cover spies. So okay. they have been, uh, you know, they, they have the perfect American backgrounds. Mm -hmm. But they are, uh, they are, they are Russian. Is that the idea? They, they, they are Russian. You know, they've, they've been sent there when they were 20 years old or something and uh, have been living there for 20 years. They, they have a family, um, speak perfect English and so on. Now, as, a, as an audience, are we supposed to be rooting for them? Because if they're Russian spies, aren't they bad guys? Or the show isn't quite that simple? Uh, so, well, they're pretty, they're very nice people, you know. Okay. Um, and they're conflicted about what they do. Would I know any of the actors in it? Um. You would, but I don't remember the uh, main actress's name. Okay. So, uh, so I think she was uh, in Felicity. Carrie Russell? The, yes, okay. exactly. Right. Uh, now, is this an ongoing show? Is it, is it currently running, or is it something that's run its course? So I think it's uh, still not over. Okay. Um, so, so I'm I'm still uh, behind on seasons. I I watched the first two, and I think it's up to four. With oh, the, good lord! Yeah, like, okay. Uh, but no, it, it's uh, it's really good. All right, what else are you into? Um, person of interest. 
which yeah, you uh, know, I because I, I I am so traumatized by having watched Lost. But one of the things I came <laughs> away with an appreciation for is, and I can't think of the actor's name now. He played Ben in Lost. I want to say Michael something. But the the actor who's in Person of Interest is the guy from Lost, right? I only watched the season of Lost, and then I said, this is not going to end well, no, and you, I gave up. You made the right choice. You made the right choice. But uh, <laughs> Lost is full of terrible actors, but I always thought that that guy, who I'm 90% sure is in Person of Interest. Oh, I might be... Uh, yeah, yeah. But I don't remember that. Okay. So what what is Person of Interest? So it's basically this... Uh, I don't know whether you would call it the dystopia or not, but uh, a guy has built a perfect information gathering machine that is recording every conversation and every uh, every CDTV camera and so on, feeding them into a huge computer, and that computer is predicting who's going to be doing bad stuff. And oh, the like government a, is using it. A minority report kind of thing. Yes, uh, but the guy left the back door in there because he's feeling guilty, and uh, he uses the machine to find out people who are about to run into trouble and goes to help them. Uh, and is the main guy? So I just looked it up. I cheated. Uh, Michael Emerson is the guy from Lost, and he plays a character named Harold Finch on Perfect Yes, that's, uh, okay. And he's the main guy then. Like it's mainly he's the lead actor. Uh, one of the two. Okay, because so, I like him a lot, so that actually kind of sells me on Person of Interest. And do you know, is Person of Interest an ongoing show, or has that run its course? Yeah, I think that's uh, still ongoing as well. You know, these days, if you want something that's not ongoing, you really need to watch The Wire. Well, that, I know. Yep, you got me there. <laughs> uh, and that also, like, I, it sounds like you're the same way. I love being able to just uh, binge watch and know that, okay, this show is going to run at my schedule. I don't have to wait every week for it. Like I kind of yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah, like letting a TV show get canceled or finish and then uh, going to watch it. Like that's what I'm doing right now. Uh, HBO is running a new sci-fi series called Westworld. And I have determined I'm not going to watch it. I'm going to wait for the season to run its course. And then if people think that it held up, I'm going to go ahead and binge watch it. But otherwise, I'm hands off for now. Uh so is there anything that's currently running that you watch concurrent with it being broadcast? No, because, you know, I don't exactly get uh, US TV here. Oh, is that true? Like, what if you wanted to watch, uh, I don't know, what's a contemporary TV? Um, oh, Walking uh, Dead, for instance. Uh, like, could you watch uh, the next season of Walking Dead that starts this Sunday? I would probably need to... Set up a VPN or something like okay, that. Right. Uh, I mean, okay, I could watch the Netflix series usually. Sure, right, right. So Except then... House of Cards, because House of Cards they sold the rights separately to each country. Like they they thought, oh, we'll show it in the U.S. and then we'll license it to actual TV stations in other countries. Right. So I cannot watch House of Cards season four from Netflix even now. Uh, Yuho, it's about American politics. You wouldn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> House of Cards, by the way, I've never seen either, but that's another thing that I've heard good things about. Uh, speaking of American politics, I mean, I have to ask you this. We all wonder this. What is the Swiss and Finnish perspective on what's going on with our presidential election, if you don't mind my asking? Oh, my God. It's such a... <sighs> it, 
it's scary. Like, uh, how can you let things get this far? Yep. Uh, do 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 you have it? Do people think that there's really a chance he might be elected, Donald Trump? I mean, who knows? It's Americans. Right. They could do anything. <laughs> uh, but but you know, okay. So so it's funny because uh, both uh, Finland and Switzerland have had kind of nationalist. Uh, semi-racist parties. I actually didn't know that about uh, Switzerland. I mean, I know I know in English politics, uh, and certainly in French politics, like uh, Le Pen. Uh, what's the nationalist situation in, in in Swiss politics? So, well, they they one of the biggest parties is basically running on that agenda and has been running for you know last I don't know twenty thirty years. Mm-hmm. Um, but Swiss politics is very consensus driven, so you know they'll win their uh, 30% of the vote or whatever, and all the parties will form a government, and uh, it's uh, th- that's all there is to it. It's not like they they have a lot of really disgusting ads, but that's it. Uh, you, uh, oh, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, and and in Finland, uh, the Nationalist Party, you know, won a big share of the vote last time. They were let into the coalition government. They actually, people wanted them in the government even four years before that. And as always happens when you let one of these kind of uh, protest parties into government, people realized, oh, God, no, this was a bad idea. I'm, they are actually incompetent. And now they've plummeted down in popularity. So I think in the U.S., a lot of uh, a common perspective in the U.S. is that the two-party system that we have here, as opposed to a lot of European politics, uh, here it's strictly there's a Republican or a Democratic candidate. Third parties are marginalized. They have no real voice in government. And I always feel that one of the advantages of that over a typical consensus-based like parliamentary system uh, is that we don't allow nationalists and racists and xenophobes, we don't allow them a voice in our government. Whereas in another system, they do have, they, they get to speak out. And I think what's happening in the US is that that small voice that is normally not part of the two-party system has basically hijacked one of the parties. Um, so I, I kind of support this idea of two-party politics. Uh, and I think that this is an example of it breaking and falling prey to the kind of stuff that happens in a, in a more consensus-driven system like what you're talking about. Um, but if for what it's worth, uh, we're, we're not going to elect him. I don't think there was ever any danger of him being elected. Uh, we're just making a lot of really ugly noises. Uh, and <laughs> I, I apologize, and I think it will mostly be over after the election. We will go back to putting these people back into the woodwork, I think, I hope. So... <laughs> Uh, all right. Let's hope so. Yeah. Let's. Uh, yep. Fingers crossed. So uh, let, let's then talk some some lighter stuff, some games. You got to go to Essen this year. What were? Can you tell me the the games that you bought? What was good enough that you thought? Yep. I'm gonna lay out my, I don't know, sixty euros or whatever it costs these days, and bring this home with me. So let's see. There was uh, Honshu which is um, a really clever filler game. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was First Class, which is a Euro game, heavier, well, 
a medium heavy euro game continental divide which is kind of an economic railroad game real quick i want to stop um, you and ask you uh okay i'm gonna guess that honshu you said it's a filler game uh obviously something about uh, some asian trading am i am i right am i correct like trading amongst china and japan and korea um, <laughs> it's it's uh building a japanese city i think okay all right so a little so, casual kind of, city builder kind of game. So so it's interesting because it's sold as a kind of hybrid between a trick-taking game and a city builder. Okay. That takes half an hour. Mm -hmm. um, so people have tried a lot of trick-taking hybrids and I always buy them because I think it could be made to work and they never work. Uh, Honshu actually works. What's another example of a trick-taking hybrid that I might know? Uh, like... That you might know. Well, the previous one I bought was uh, S Evolution. That that was that was not good. Okay. Um, yeah. So so because these things fail, you wouldn't actually know about them. Only okay. people who are stupid <laughs> enough to you know <laughs> buy but, them just on the premise. But you're going to bat for Honshu. You feel that Honshu does work. Uh, it's really good because it's not actually a trick-taking game. It's an auction game that pretends to be a trick-taking game. Good, okay. The thing and I like about auction games is auction games uniquely involve uh, everyone at the table. I always feel that one of the weaknesses of a game is a game where you're w sitting and waiting for someone else to take his turn. Uh, that's one of the great things about bidding in auctions is that everybody has to sort of g gets involved and there's a reason for everybody to always pay attention. Yeah. So, so yeah, the rhythm here is that, okay, you've got your hand of uh, six cards. You're going to um, play the cards as in, if it was a trick-taking game, and then in order of the number of cards you've uh, played, you're going to pick from those four cards, mm -hmm. and then you're going to build a city out of them. So it's kind of, okay, this is a really good card, but it's got a mediocre number, so I need to get late in turn order, and then I can maybe play this and win a trick with this and get to pick it myself. Mm -hmm. Now, it's, uh, uh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, so first class, you said it's a Euro game. I'm going to guess it's about um, selling tickets on an airplane, on an airliner. Oh, not, not bad. It's uh, about railroads. So oh, that's close. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, I think it had a subtitle mentioning the Orient Express. So I, uh, if I'd mentioned that, you would have totally gotten it right. Okay, right. Uh, Continental Divide, you said also a, a train game. I'm guessing in the, in the U.S. there's probably no Continental Divide in, in Europe, is there? No, no. So, so you're, you're correct. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so those three, Honshu, uh, First Class, uh, Continental Divide, what are some other games you came away with? I'm going to be really uh, jealous if you name one of them that I'm thinking you're going to name. Uh, Bias Genesis. No, I'm not jealous. Of, wait, what is that a Phil Eklund? What is, what is that? That, that? Yeah, that's Phil Eklund's new one. Yeah, I am jealous about that one. I didn't know you got that one. Uh, all right, what do you have you gotten to play it? No, I've been trying to work my way through the rulebook for the last two days. It's it's <sighs> this rulebook has uh, footnotes that are half a page long. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's Phil Eklund for you. And I, I kind of. <laughs> Like I've I've I will probably never play um, his space game. I think it's called High Frontier. Uh, yeah. And I'm kind of okay with that because just reading the notes in it and reading about the different like 
kinds of engines that he's supposing and expressing in gameplay terms. Uh, if I never play High Frontier, I will still be glad that I own it. Uh. <laughs> so back in previous years, one of my favorite things at SN has been uh, going there, um, go to the Sierra Madre Games booth mm -hmm. and listen just to Phil Eklund explain a game so, 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 the, so the way he demos games is that he's one of the players, and he doesn't explain the rules up front. He will just tell people enough to, you know, make a move of some sort. Mm -hmm. And then he will be narrating the game at the same time. <laughs> so, you know, you're uh, playing Pax Parfuriana, and somebody plays a certain card, and Phil Eklund will be acting out the assassination of a president or whatever. And it's so good. But it's that, a bit too popular these days. More than anything else I've heard about Essen, that makes me wish I could go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know, it's it's so crowded at his booth these days that it's very hard to just stand there for fifteen minutes and listen. Right. Uh, what? So, what is this latest game? What did you call Biogenesis? Uh, Bios Genesis. So it's kind of a prequel to Bios Megafauna. Okay. So, so basically, uh, the evolution of creatures is that the idea? So, hang on, I've got the rule book here. I will read, read the introduction. Okay. Uh, one to four players start as organic compounds shortly after Earth's formation, <laughs> represented by up to three bion tokens. And it continues. Uh, one player is the amino acids, another is the lipids, the third is pigments, and the fourth is nucleic acids. And it goes from there. Uh, I've heard that pigments are overpowered and need to be nerfed. <laughs> they, they must be. Uh, <laughs> wow, that is amazing. And that, yeah, that's that's Phil Eklund for you. That is amazing. Uh, all right, so that's not the one I was worried you were going to mention and that I would be super jealous about. Uh, what else did you did you come away with? Uh, there was Tramways, which was a really small press uh, railroad game. That one too. Okay. Um. Let's see. Okay, so the one uh, I, I was going to be super jealous of, and maybe it's not available yet, uh, the uh, shoot, I can't remember his name. The guy who made a quartermaster general, his new World War One. Oh yeah, so yeah, so I got quartermaster general oh. in 1914 as well. Oh, I'm so jealous! I'm so jealous. Uh, have you gotten I, to play it? it? Yeah, it's it's really good. Though I never played the original. Oh, uh, okay. Because what what I wanted to know is, does it feel just like a reskinning? Like, is there enough? Are there enough new mechanics to merit having that as well as the original? Uh, so, so I think so. Having just read the rules of the original, not actually played it. So one thing is that it's three versus two rather rather than three versus three, mm -hmm. and that's actually a huge difference because you know how hard it is to actually take an area from a, another player right. because you need to first kill the army and then you can move in on the next turn. Well, if it's uh, three versus two, then the allies can kind of try to cooperate on that. Let's kill a German army with the French, and then the British can just move into the empty area. And that means that the sides are really asymmetric, because to balance for this stuff, the Germans have all these incredibly high-powered cards. Wow, I like the dynamics of that, because there, there's this weird sense of, yeah, the, the every, you know, Axis allies, Axis allies, Axis allies nature of... Quartermaster General, the World War II version, uh, definitely gives it a consistent pace, and the asymmetry is just in the cards. But to actually expand the asymmetry out to the turn structure, that's kind of huge. 
Yeah. And uh, another thing, uh, so I think they used to have reaction cards, like you would keep cards in your hand and if you're attacked, you say, ah, you can't kill me because I've got this card. Right. And then the attacker would play a card from their hand and no, no, I've got even a better card. Mm-hmm. And here you need to prepare. So you, every turn you can prepare one card. So you place it face down in front of you. And then during battles, you can play cards from there. So they did. that is how Quartermaster General originally worked in the uh, Air Marshal add-on. Uh, it added the reactions out of your hand. Oh, okay. Uh, which, uh, miss- which, by the way, I don't... Uh, I, I kind of feel the game didn't really need. Like, I like that idea of you watch someone play the card face down and you have to wonder what that is. And there's a sense of bluffing there. Uh, Once you know the decks, you kind of know, okay, is that the Stalingrad card? Or, you know, is that something else? Like, you know what's lurking out there. Uh, So, yeah, I was never a big fan of the reaction cards out of your hand. I'm glad that's not part of 1914. Yeah, and then the... um... Other thing it does, so so it models World War One really well because you run out of cards with some factions really really easily. Like Austria and Russia, they're these glass cannons. They'll come out of 1914 and just conquer everything if they want to. And then it's 1916 in game terms, and it's okay. I've got five cards in my deck, and we're half the halfway through the game. Right. Right. And they just need to start stalling the game so much, which is exactly how the real world war played out. Mm-hmm. Um, now, have you, gotten, so, yeah. have you gotten a chance to actually play it, or it's just one that you came home with? Like, have you rolled it out at your lunchtime board gaming yet? Uh, well, we played it uh, at the hotel in Essen. So, you know, the, the rhythm of going to Essen is that in the days so you go to the fair, you play as many games as you can. Um, like at the ferry itself, and you buy stuff, you get back to the hotel, uh, you play the stuff you bought. If there's stuff you didn't buy and no, nobody in your group bought, but somebody else did, you see that, oh, those people have this game we would really like to try, and it's going to be really hard to actually get to a demo table. You're going, hey, we'll buy you a beer if uh, we can play this game. Uh, are people so, all, like, is there a common, like, are people all in a, in a common area uh, at the hotel? Like, how do you... I'm imagining everyone no, going back to their hotel room, but it's not quite like that. Like you can see other people and join them playing their games. So it's not just a single hotel because I mean that, that event is huge. It's like 150,000 people during the whole weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, but every single hotel is going to be fully booked, and their restaurant area is in most hotels going to be used for gaming. Like the hotels know that oh the gamers are going right. to be here. And they'll have a special menu, and they'll be, you know, prepared for opening it up and uh, letting people play. Right, right. Uh, and you know, yeah, that means that you're going to be surrounded by all these games, and you know, people are really friendly. So if you go and ask Nitel, they'll usually let you borrow the game. Uh, when you travel, do you when you go to Essen, do you go with a group of, of friends, the guys you play board games with? Do you go on your own? Yeah, we go, go as a group, so it's uh, so we've been doing this for eight years or so. I've, I've missed a couple, some other people's missed some, um, and the membership in the group changes a little bit, but really you want at least four people or so to travel with, just because otherwise it's going to be really hard to get games done at the fair itself. Right, right. Since, you know, so if it's a four-player game, chances are that 
every game will already have four players. And, you know, you can't yourself ask, hey, can I play this game alone, essentially. Right, right, right. Uh, so, so then you would need to, hey, can I, can I take this table and wait for three other stragglers to come along and want to play it? Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you guys played Quartermaster General 1914, uh, which side won? The Allies won. Uh, the um, conventional wisdom, I think, about uh, uh, Quartermaster General, the World War II version, is that it's more difficult to win as the Axis as well, that the Allies win more often. Uh, I don't know if that's the case. Uh, it's varied a lot when I play it. but uh, All right, so you came away. Any other games that I missed? Uh, I'm surprised you, you said you weren't super impressed with uh, with Terraforming Mars, which I've oh, read. Uh... Mm-hmm. I'm so deeply conflicted about that game. Why? So the game mechanics are garbage. It's so. So I didn't like the designer's previous game. Uh, to say it upfront. Uh, Which is what? What do I know? It, What's his previous game? Uh, that was Space Station. You would not know it. Okay. For a good reason. <laughs> uh, so so okay. So actually, let me be positive first. Uh-huh. Terraforming Mars is basically like a Phil Eklund game light. You're, you're, you're making me want to play it. Okay, go on. Uh, yes, and I am not s- sorry about having played the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so it's got this really good theme. It's got these cards that uh, present the theme really well. So, so terraforming Mars, you're doing exactly what the box says, right? You're trying to, you're taking Mars and you're trying to make it into a habitable planet. Mm-hmm. And these cards have all these amazing tools for doing it. Oh, I'm going to crash an ice comet into Mars, or I'm going to use a nuclear bomb to bust open the crust and open up a volcano, or I'm going to build a soleta array that can redirect the sunlight onto the planet, or I'll plant I'll gene-engineered trees that grow with very little carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And you fill out this board, and it really feels like, oh my god, this planet is coming alive. But then the problem is that this deck of cards is really thick. It's like 200 cards or something. Mm-hmm. And there's a bunch of cards that will, rare cards that will have really strong synergies with each other. So, you know, something has a special power to make Action X cheaper. And another card will uh, make Action X stronger. So if you get those two cards together, you're just going to be super strong compared to the players who did not get their combo. Mm -hmm. And because you're drawing four cards a turn, you're really not seeing enough cards to actually reliably get those combos. So it's all just a matter of luck. Right, like who's lucky enough out of those 200 cards to get the synergies? Yeah, exactly. And, And, you know, this is not a... Something like Race for the Galaxy, for example started suffering from this problem after the second expansion. Like they started with a hundred cards and then you could reliably find the combos from that deck. Right. And then they added 50 cards and another 50 cards. And by the time it came, uh, you had a third expansion. It was okay. You cannot actually find the cards from the deck anymore. And they had to start adding more mechanisms to see more cards. Um, that, that basically just shows someone who doesn't understand the whole idea of deck building. Because uh, in, in, any, in any collectible card game, the point is you want 
as few cards in your deck as you can because you want the specific cards to come together and form their synergies. Like if you were to play Magic with, you know, a, a deck of a hundred cards, you're <laughs> it's a stupid thing to do because you yeah, yeah you want your exactly. minimum of forty cards yeah yeah absolutely and uh, it drives me mad when game designers make this mistake right and I kind of understand why it happens it's because you know. This, ha this was clearly a theme-first game. Right, right. Uh, and it was a great experience, but I just cannot see myself playing it more than four or five times because at some point you've seen the theme, you've seen the story. Uh, Yuho, that makes me think of movies that are too long, like that need some editing. Like, it could have been good, but it really went on too long. Like, it sounds like a game that needs editing. <laughs> like, it really... <laughs> needs to have this stuff cut out of it that keeps it from being a good design. Yeah, Yeah, or, or it needs to have something added to it so that you can more reliably get what you need in the game. Right. Um, but, I mean, that's what good uh, uh, developers are for. Like that, That's the board game dichotomy. You've got the designer who comes up with the basic design, and then you've got the developer who is supposed to actually polish it. Which actually always surprised me, that whole structure is, why doesn't a good designer also know how to polish? Because that, that sort of division doesn't really exist in other forms of entertainment. Like, no, like the guy who creates something kind of knows how to make it good, I would think. No, it's books of editors, for example, right? The I editor guess... will tell the author that, hey, no, no, cut out half of this middle section here. It's too long. I guess a part of though is it seems to me the developer is often credited more prominently than an editor for a book or a movie when you're when you're talking about board game because I'm always confused about okay who's the designer who's the developer do I look for more of the designer's work do I look for more of the developer's work uh, it just seems like developers just have a much more prominent role in board gaming uh, than I would expect like like why doesn't a designer know <laughs> Don't put so many cards in your game. You know, <laughs> why does he need yeah, a developer the, to tell him that? Uh, because the designer has a vision, and uh, yeah. they're single-mindedly going for that vision rather than the kind of holistic approach. Right. There's the creative, and then there's the practical. Sure. Uh, so then, let's talk then about a game that I I uh, think, and this is this is something you chose to talk about for reasons that uh, that I'll mention in a minute. Terra Mystica is such a, I want to say, pared-down design. Like, Terra Mystica, in a way, is the epitome of Eurogaming. Uh, but there's still there's still a lot of stuff and variety in there. Uh, it, it, it almost, I don't want to say Ameritrash, but there, there's so many distinct, the, the different races, the, the moving pieces. Uh, Terra Mystica is just weird for me, and it's been a difficult sell for my gaming group. So let's talk some Terra Mystica. You made an online interface for people to play it, right? Yeah, um, I was playing a, so, okay. I don't pre-order a lot of games. Mm -hmm. I pre-ordered Terra Mystica just based on kind of the designers and having a quick look at the rules. Now, would I know any of their previous games? So um, you might. Um, uh, Jens Drogemuller uh, made uh, Scepter of Zavandor, which was a 
pretty popular game in the mid uh, uh, around 2006, I think. Okay, I do not know that one. And, yeah. All right, and uh, uh, Helge Östertag, he made uh, Kaiwai. Don't know that one either. Okay, but that, you know, amazing games. Okay. So it's uh, all right. If they're teaming up, this could be good. So one of my very few pre-orders ever. And I loved it. I wanted to play it more. Real quick, how old is it? When did Terra Mystica come out? Uh, 2012, okay. I think. Okay. Um, but yeah, so I wanted to play it more. We started a play by forum game on uh, Board Game Geek. Mm -hmm. And we were making so many mistakes. Like, you know, one in four moves, somebody would do their accounting wrong. <laughs> Uh, because, you know, you're moving a lot of resources around in that game. Mm -hmm. So, that, oh, I'll just write a little, little program that does the accounting. And then it kind of started growing. And at some point it was, oh, now it's a full implementation of the game. And uh, where can folks find that? It's on the internet, right? Yeah, so it's at uh, terra.snellman.net. T-E-R-R-A. Uh, and have you gotten any response or any word from, is it Z-Man that published Terra Mystica? So, well, they were the English publisher, I think. Okay. Um, but no, I, I deal with the uh, German original uh, publisher. So I have their permission to do it. Um, they're actually really nice people. Uh, we use the online implementation for a lot of playtesting for the expansion. Um, like, you know, at some point they say, hey, there's going to be an expansion out. We're going to have this uh, new map there. Could you find some people to secretly play test this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. And at some point, hey, here's a few of the new factions. Can you see how they work? Um, so it's kind of this, uh, they get something out of it, which is a, a dedicated fan base and uh, occasionally some play testing. Mm -hmm. And uh, everybody else gets to play the game. Uh, and do you currently, like, do you always have games of Terra Mystica going online? Yeah, so I've got a couple of running games uh, with groups of friends. Mm -hmm. uh, they've probably gone for, both of those series have gone for 100 games or something. Uh, like 100 games in a row with the same people. So, I, wow, I can imagine what that must turn out like, like when everybody knows the game so well one of the things that i've run into uh it's one thing to teach everyone the systems and to give someone a race and they play that race but yeah. there, it's so like i would imagine the efficacy of any given race a lot of times can depend on what other races are in the game like, like knowing oh, it... not just my race but knowing intimately how the other races work and how the the different races synergize with each other or complement each other or for instance how some race might be super overpowered if other races aren't present or uh, like it, it just the, the asymmetry of all the little different races fitting together playing a hundred games you guys must have had some crazy meta game emerging about race choice yeah uh, absolutely well okay so those games with those people those are just for fun so nobody takes them too seriously okay uh, but then we've got this online tournament going that's got a, it, it runs a season every two months and it's got about a thousand people playing and a really complicated 
a system for moving people up and down in divisions and so on, mm-hmm. based on how well they did. And uh, there I played in the top division for, I know, about two years. And those were like really hardcore. You had most played a lot of games against the same people and people were serious about winning this thing. Uh, and you would see crazy stuff there as people tried new things, kind of pocket strategy. Uh, in that top division, yeah. were there, uh, were there, is there any conventional wisdom about a best race to choose? So, well, best is if, are you trying to win or are you trying not to lose? Uh, Darklings <laughs> are the Darklings are the safest race. You will always be in the top two, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, that, that's overstating it, but you know they they are always strong. They, there is no not a case where they are weak. Mm-hmm. So if you don't make mistakes, you'll do well. Uh, engineers are the high risk race because you can you can do super well. You can just roll over everybody, or you can just round one. You're a bit too greedy, and that's that's the game written off. Right, right. And that's absolutely a part of the meta game. Like, you need wins to, you know, a win is much better in the tournament than uh, a second and a third place, something like that. So, when you were playing, would you go for a high risk race, or did you tend to play it safe? I would always take the witches, no matter what, pretty much. Now, why would you do that? So here's another thing about Terra Mystica. Uh, there are all of these different named races, uh, but for the most part, and you can maybe correct me if I'm wrong on this, a race is only defined by two things, uh, one global special ability and what the keep does when it's built. Now, I know there's some minor differences in terms of like costs for things, uh, but for the most part, isn't that true that any given race is only defined by two mechanics? No, okay. you're actually skipping the most important part, which is their core. So the way Terra Mystica works for the listeners is that you've got the shared map where you're building buildings. And a faction can only build buildings on hexes of their own core. And uh, if you want to build on somebody else's core, you need to transform it to your core first. And it's more expensive the, the there's kind of a cert, a wheel of colors. So blue is next to green, which is next to gray, which is next to uh, red and so on, which will then wrap back around to blue at some point. So what you want to make sure is that you're not sandwiched by other colors on the other, you know, you want you want the free neighboring color to build into. Here's something I don't know, actually, Yuho. Are the are the wheels the same for everyone in terms of the order? I'm guessing they're not then. They're, they're, they're the same. Oh, okay. Um, so there's always going to be like swamp next to whatever, desert next to mountain or whatever. Like that's always yeah. going to be the same for all races? Yeah, exactly. Well, okay. except the giants who ignore the wheel completely. Right, right. And some of the add-on races also are really funky. Yeah. Uh, but But yeah, so... One thing that's important is you need to figure out which colors, which factions are people likely to pick and what colors is that likely to leave empty. Mm-hmm. And then you want to pick one that's likely to have preferably two empty neighbors next to it. This, this then gets to a difficult question for me. Uh, 
in that situation, what are the rules about? Because if I'm not mistaken, don't, doesn't the rule book say, "Hey, everybody, just pick a race"? Like, are, aren't there are there rules about the order that races are chosen? Yeah, you pick a start player, uh, and then in turn order, everybody picks a race. Okay, okay. Yeah. So. And then and then there's uh, the thing about placing, and then in reverse order you place your second. And uh, okay, so that is in it, the game rules. Okay. Yeah, and it's actually amazing that. So there's a little bit of an imbalance between the different factions, but the seating order, that's as perfectly balanced as is possible, pretty much. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't know how they did that, because there should be advantages to either the early or the late pickers, but there isn't, and I don't know why. Now, is that because like, it seems like it would be a disadvantage to actually pick first and not know... What else is like? It seems like the guy who picks last would be most likely to be able to take advantage of what you talked about: is having the empty, is not having neighbors on his uh, adjacent color wheel, his adjacent terrain wheel situation. Like it seems like it, it, you would always benefit from going last. Yeah, except that the best. So this game has a variable setup. So you, the set of available special tiles will be slightly different. The uh, there will be a special scoring every round, and that will be different from game to game. You do see? Do you see that before you pick the race? Yes. Ah, okay. So, so, so then that means you know, oh, now it's the perfect games for the game for the alchemists. Right, right. And an early player will pick that one, off, and the fourth player won't get it. Another thing is that the first player will have the first dibs on uh, uh, special actions on the round uh, on the first round. Ah, sure, sure. So, 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 I mean, yeah, there, there are things pulling, like, in both ways. But it shouldn't balance out perfectly, and it does, which is really impressive. So, uh, then, given this, why do you pick the witches? Why were you always picking the witches? What's their... I, mean, I was oh. kidding a little bit. Oh, oh okay. You know, I would only, only pick them, like, 50% of the time or something. Well, but Ruka, I, I, actually, I just like them. I do want to cycle back, uh, circle back real quick. So I, I said uh, the main things that set apart the races are uh, what their two special powers are, what they get when they build their keep and what their little yeah. global abilities. And and you, you disagreed and you said the main thing that uh, – a more important thing that sets them apart is, is what again? Uh, the color. Oh, like, like where they are on the, the, uh, the, ter the yeah, terraform exactly. wheel. Okay, right, right. Yeah, exactly. In relation to the other races in the game. Yes, or the other races you're expecting to be in the game. Right. I, I feel like you've, I feel like you've given me a huge advantage next time. Next time I play <laughs> with our group, because none of us even looked at that. And and also what we did, simply because I've never played it with people who know the game very well. I've always been teaching it to to people, or maybe playing it with someone who's only played it once before. Uh, is just randomly hand out races and then pick which of the two sides you want, and that's obviously not the way the game is intended to be played. That's just a shortcut for beginning players where you might... Because that's another thing is I don't want a new player to say, okay, here's whatever, eight, ten races, pick one. No, uh, no, no, I mean, you are totally right to do it that way. Um, but it's not how you... Once people are experts and actually understand what they're doing, then the faction selection becomes really important and you actually need to have people do it. While once nobody knows how to play the game, well, who cares? It's going to 
it's going to all end up kind of random anyway, right? I always, I, I think I have, a, you, you can tell board gamers by, would you rather play, uh, do, do you enjoy more the discovery of a new game, or do you enjoy the evolution of a game that rewards skill? Like, like, like Terra Mystica will always, someone who's played before will always, always, always win against someone who hasn't played before. Whereas other games with like lots of randomness, with more of an emphasis on theme or narrative, everybody can jump in and have a good time. And if you've played a lot, you might not necessarily win. Uh, like I, I feel like Terra Mystica is definitely on that side for uh, it's a game you want to stick with to develop and cultivate your skill at it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's super good at it because there is just this huge amount of depth to the metagame and uh, the tactics and the strategy in there. So so one, one problem that I've had also selling it is there's these cool named races, uh, but I'm not sure I can suss out what narrative there is behind why <laughs> each race does what they do. Now, I love the few times where Terra Mystica sort of tries to give a thematic explanation for a power, like the nomads get sandstorm for instance. So, and that looks, that, that does what you think it does and it has a lot of impact and it's very clear. I'm doing this cool thing by my sandstorm is changing this to the desert. Like that's super thematic. But uh, the other ones, I, uh, like you can even, okay, dwarves can tunnel. Like what do witches do? Give me the thematic explanation for witches. Okay, so what witches do with their stronghold is they can place a dwelling in any forest square on the map. Okay. And the thematic explanation, and I kid you not, is that they fly their broomsticks there. Oh, yes, you're right. That's another one where they kind of went to explain it. Right, I do remember that. <laughs> now, what is their global ability, the thing in the bottom right of their little uh, mat? Uh, they get five victory points for every city. All right, explain so that, that one to me, Yuho. Yeah, what's and, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I cannot. Yeah, see? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, what's, is, does this actually, is this something that you care about or that you think about? Like, does this matter to you that, that it feels very Euro and abstract sometimes? No, I mean, I'm, I'm fine with that. Uh, I don't think it's a completely pasted on theme. Mm -hmm. uh, as in... I don't think it started as an abstract. I, I believe that it from the start was, oh, we are going to have very specific factions with asymmetric special powers. And maybe in some cases they didn't quite find the right, right kind of thematic and mechanical fit for a, for a faction. Like, it really does sound like um, for the witches, they just kind of needed some special ability. So uh, five extra victory points for a city. Like, that does kind of seem like a bit of a shrug. In, in yeah, of that. that's that's not great. Um, but, but I mean, I'm okay with it. Mm -hmm. There are a lot more outrageous examples of pasted on themes in the world. And uh, also, in the end, I do play the games for the mechanics. Sure. So... Well, uh, what is the most ridiculous race in terms of pasted on theme? 
Can you can you think of one? I don't I actually should have brought my copy in here with me because I'd love to go through <laughs> and and force you to give me a narrative for the most difficult, obtusely themed race in the game. So let's see. Um, well, the fakirs are kind of fine because they can carpet fl fly their magic carpet. That's right. That's another uh, one where they explain. Yeah, you're yeah. flying a carpet. Right. Right. Uh, let's see. The mermaids are fine. Well, the okay, the Oren right. are really bad. They're, now they're a green race, aren't they? Right. They're, they're a green race, but what's an Oren anyway? It's, who knows? What's is their it, special power? There is actually elf? isn't like, one. I'm thinking, isn't an Oren like elves? I could be wrong. What's their? Yeah. So what uh, are their special powers? None. They they don't have a special power. Oh. <laughs> well, what what do they get for their stronghold? Uh, they get two cult steps. So, oh, yeah, yeah, they're not a popular race because <laughs> they just get nothing. And then, that's if, right. If I... they had, if they'd called them humans, yeah, then exactly, I would have said exactly, exactly. You know, right. <laughs> and I'm, you're right. Now I can completely envision that's the board that is conspicuous for the blank for the gap in the lower right hand side of their mat. Yeah, <laughs> there's nothing there. Uh, yeah, I in in, yeah, in space forex game. Like a Master of Orion or any Master of Orion clone, they would be called humans. Well, even in fantasy, that works in fantasy. Oh, yeah, the human race is yeah. the, yeah, they have nothing special. They get no benefit. Yeah. They don't have any stat modifiers. Yeah. yeah. So I, I played the last game that we played uh, a few days ago. Uh, I was the Chaos Magicians. Now, I didn't have one, but one of the players I was playing with when I when I made some comment about yeah a lot of these the theme is just they couldn't really think of something they just gave them a mechanic and a name, uh, and I I sort of mentioned the special ability of the chaos magicians and a friend of mine was like oh no I completely understand what that was and he explained it to me, do you have any idea like wh how would you explain if you could thematically the chaos magicians? So are you talking so their abilities for the stronghold are that they get to take two actions in a row. Mm -hmm. And for the faction special power, they get to take two of these special favor tiles right. anytime they would normally take one. Which I kind of get that. Like they're, they, they're really good at, at, at magic, and therefore they thrive uh, in terms of building, uh, in terms of being part of cults, which is what those little uh, tracks are called for the different elemental religions, kind of. Uh, so that yeah. part I get. But uh, yeah, so, so go ahead. So it, how would you explain then the, the rest of their mechanics? So the stronghold, I believe, the rulebook says that they have awesome time-warping powers. <laughs> okay. I, okay, I like that. So they can do magic really well. They have time-warping powers. Explain to me why they only get to place one city at the beginning of the game. <sighs> because they would be unbalanced otherwise. <laughs> I bet you're right, but my friend, and bless his heart for bringing this up, he was like, no, you are sitting in your volcano stronghold. <laughs> you, it's your evil henchman villain. It's your evil villain lair, like an evil villain who lives in a volcano. That's who the chaos magicians are. <laughs> so I got this sense like, yeah, okay, cool. I'm sitting in my volcano because they have volcanic terrain uh, dispensing powerful magics. Uh, so I really appreciated that. That's pretty cool. Now, uh, one of the when when you're explaining uh, Terra Mystica, and people are waiting for you to explain how you fight each other, what do you do? <laughs> I 
Like, how do you explain this as a game that has no combat without people uh, thinking, oh, well, I don't want to play? Well, you need to understand that the people I play with, mm-hmm. by default, would assume that there's no combat anyway. Oh, you Euro but, people who play in your little yeah, economic exactly. games. <laughs> but how can you have a fantasy uh, race? How can you have dwarves and giants and not have combat in a game? That's madness. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, it's got a much cooler way of interacting than just stupid destructive combats. All right, explain. So, so, well, again, yeah, you're building on this uh, shared map. And normally in a game like that, what you want to do is you want to be left alone so that you can build up in your own corner of the map and uh, let the others fight it out between each other exactly the guy who wins will be the guy who doesn't have any neighbors right who who is free to expand he's obviously going to win he's going to have the most resources yeah exactly while in terra mystica you want neighbors because if somebody builds next to you you get to leech a little bit of power from them so so they don't lose anything but the game gives you free stuff so then you have this huge tension there i want neighbors but the neighbors are going to take away my living space. Uh, so you try to find the perfect spot where you are going to have the edge over your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, oh, I want to be kind of in the middle, for example, middle of the board, push them towards the edge. Or uh, I know I want to pick a faction that can easily get neighbors from the existing colors. That, like, like complementary neighbors, yellow and blue, really good together. What, why are yellow uh, for and blue good together? Well, they're on opposite sides, so they don't want each other's terrain at all. Oh, right. And, okay. Yeah. And then there's a couple of spots on the board that blue really likes and yellow really likes. So they will often just put their both of their dwellings next to each other. And then they're kind of guaranteed, well, okay, fine, nomads would put a third dwelling on the table as well, but so you know, the, they're guaranteed to be able to cooperate. So the expansion added a map. That must drive people crazy, or actually maybe they like it. Like, Because I look at the map and it just looks like a random jumble to me. I don't know the game well enough to look at the map and see uh, a strategy or a game flow for the different races. Uh, but I guess with the two different maps, a guy like you, they must seem dramatically different as far as like what kinds of games get set up and how they play out, right? Yeah, there absolutely, and it's incredibly sensitive to. So we were playtesting the new map, and you know, we'd say, say to the designer, say, um, black is really too strong here, or brown is too weak, or whatever, and they would like change three or four uh, spots on the board, like just change a single, swap two uh, hexes around, uh-huh. and then we would. Oh, no, no, no. Yellow is way too overpowered now. Uh, it's just so sensitive to it. We're actually, uh, we've got a community effort right now on Board Game Geek where we're designing a new map and then we're playtesting it online. Mm-hmm. And I think we've probably had like two or 300 posts in the thread by now, people suggesting with different variants and being shot down. Uh, you know, oh, I think so everybody agrees blue is too good on this map. How do we make blue worse and green better? Right, right. And it just snowballs people, you know, somebody suggests something and then everybody picks holes in the, no, 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 look, look at the snowball effect this will have. Like it's, 
that's clearly going to make uh, yellow too good. Right, right. Uh, uh, I want to ask you about an opening strategy. Uh, one of the things that when I played that a new player will never do, and I think you're supposed to do, is you've got that Mancala with the three bowls for what's called power, but I describe it as like mana. Um, and you've got 12 units of power, of mana in there. And they cycle around in the bowl. You never get more. Uh, but what you can do is spend out of the bowl so that you have fewer. And to do that, like it costs you the amount in there, but you can get sort of a, an injection of immediate power at a longer term cost. Uh, are you supposed to do that early in the game? Like, is that do do people who refuse to spend their power because they think, oh, I, I don't want to deplete my my precious supply of only twelve mana? Um, are they hamstringing themselves? Yeah, that's that's fatal. If if you don't burn the power early on, then you've lost the game. I am so and glad actually, you, I, I am so you are so helping <laughs> me the next time we play this. You, oh, this is I'm so glad to be justified in that. Go ahead, so explain that because I. That kind of seems counterintuitive. Uh, well, the number of tokens is it's really rare for that to actually be the bottleneck. Mm -hmm. um, so you probably you want at least four tokens. That's the absolute minimum you can burn down to. Anything less, and you're really in trouble. You'd preferably keep six. So right it's after really that. Rare that oh, go ahead. Yeah, it's really rare that you would need more than that. That is so good to know. So right off the bat, go ahead and maybe not right off the bat, but early on as you need them, feel free to spend half of those tokens out of there. That's that's right? Yes. And this is a, okay, I think it's a really good design basically across the board, except for these power bowls. Oh, because really? Because I, go ahead. Well, it, it does nothing having those bowls there. When you combine the being able to get rid of these tokens to move the, cycle the power from bowl two to bowl three mm -hmm. means that you could just have had two bowls to begin with uh, or one bowl and moving attract something right uh, I, I guess i'm just so aware of this idea of you know it takes my power time to charge up mm -hmm. like here's a half charged power here's a fully charged power uh and i get the sense of an engine sort of building up uh, energy. Um... Yeah, and that would be true if you if uh, sacrificing these tokens. I talk of burn, but sacrifice is the official term. Mm -hmm. uh, if that was a bad idea or a situational idea, right? Then it would be true. You you would prefer to slowly charge it up, and in desperate circumstances, you would sacrifice the power. Mm -hmm. But it's not. You're just automatically going to sacrifice down to half of it right right at the you know pretty much as soon as possible because i mean it's all about the economic snowball there right if you can get um let's say the use the power to get a round one priest that you send to the cults and right. the cults give you a spade and the spade gives you extra dwellings and you know the, the earlier you do it the bigger the benefits over the whole game are going to be right right and that seems that seems true of like a lot of what's going on is your early moves. Uh, you, like I imagine players can realize like after the first turn, oh, I've completely lost this game. I mean that that's pretty rare that you'd uh, 
maybe if you do a really bad dwelling setup, you'd, you'd lose the game automatically. But, um, you, you know, you, you do need to keep up, keep up the momentum, basically. Right. I guess, yeah, I should say, like, a few turns in, someone who's economically snowballing, like, you can sort of see the writing on the wall and realize... Okay, they've got a great starting position. You know what? I'm just saying that, Yuho, because I lost my game <laughs> when I played. Oh. And I sort of feel like it was because I sat off in one corner uh, thinking, oh, I don't want to be near everyone else. And the other, a couple of the other guys were like completely feeding each other power the whole time. And I just felt <laughs> completely shut out. I was like, well, okay, you guys have fun winning. I mean, I did well enough. I can't complain because I knew some things they didn't. But I did early on think, okay, they're going to run away with the game. <laughs> Yeah, and that's the nice tension in the setup. You you should not have let that happen. When you play with other players, uh, is there any negotiation going on? Like, I will build here, upgrade this to a trading post if you promise to put your sanctuary there. Like, is there any of that going on? Not explicitly, no. I mean, there, there's an implicit negotiation there pretty often. Mm -hmm. um, but it's never spoken out loud. Uh, do you because guys... any game, well, you know, any game can be played as a negotiation game, right? Right. Uh, but then why wouldn't you just play a negotiation game? <laughs> it's designed to for that. Well, there are certainly some games that encourages it more by explicitly allowing players to give each other resources. And there's nothing like that, of course, in, in Terra Mystica. Uh, but you are kind of giving each other resources indirectly. Uh which is kind of why I ask is there's this idea that, you know, what I do can benefit you or not benefit you. And where I do it can also benefit you or not benefit you. Uh, that doesn't happen with us because we're all, we have our heads down. We're sort of trying to figure out, okay, what should I do next? Uh, but I just wondered as players get better at the systems, do they then do that sort of negotiation thing with one another? Um, yeah, I, I would think that very few people do that kind of thing. Uh, just because it's not in the spirit of a Euro game to have a negotiation unless it's sure. uh, explicitly permitted by the rules. Right. Uh, do you guys play with, in the expansion, uh, the expansion added some new races, which uh, would it be fair to say all three of, oh, no, it's three boards, so six races, right? Uh, yeah. Would it be fair to say that they're all uh, kind of for advanced players? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, they're they're a lot trickier, like to explain, for example, which it, is already a big deal. That's actually something I've also run into with with other players. Is I feel like, you know, independent of any balance issues, uh, some of the races are kind of a difficulty mode in that some are much harder to play than others. Some of them it's much harder to sort of get them going than others. Uh, so when even though I have the expansion, even though I love the idea that the expansion adds these cool new tricks and, and mechanics that they even like have their own system, kind of, uh, I, I've never really, I've played one game in my life with the expansion races, because I've always felt like that's just for people who really know what they're doing. There's already enough to chew on with the basic races. Uh, so I feel like I'm kind of missing out on the cool stuff in the expansion races. That said, mm. oh, go ahead. No, I mean, I was going to say that, uh, you know, there's enough stuff in the base game for 50 or 100 games easy. So why worry about the expansion? Okay, I'm glad you said that because um, 
this expansion also adds, and this seems a little weird to me, and I have never played with these. It adds a, a new tile you can place over the... So I think of when I, when I explain Terra Mystica, I lay it out this way. You're going to get victory points as you play, but at the end of the game, you're going to get victory points for religion, and that's those little cults, and you're going to get victory points for politics, and that's how much of the terrain you control. Uh, <laughs> so the how much of the terrain you control, there's a the expansion adds multiple tiles that you can put to vary whether or not you're getting points for having the largest contiguous area, or that's the default. It adds all these little extra map control dynamics for who's going to get the most victory points. I have never used those. What is the official feeling, or what is your feeling, about all those crazy new mechanics for that scoring? I mean, in, in our fun games, we play with those. Uh, they're, they're interesting because they do change the set of factions that get picked. That's what I was going to say, too, is it seems like certain fa like some of them would directly benefit certain factions over others. Yeah, but you know, then that gives you more variety, basically. Right. Like the strongholds are normally a little bit underpowered uh, compared to their cost, so you don't see a lot of uh, stronghold heavy or the basically the factions whose main benefit is the stronghold. They're a little bit less popular than you might uh -huh. want. Right. But then if the tile that gives you points for the sanctuary to stronghold distance thing, if that's in, in play, those factions become a little bit better because they want to build their stronghold while other factions don't. Right, right, right. So so they've got a either other people are gonna also pick factions that want to build a stronghold, or other people are going to build strongholds they didn't actually need, or you get uh, free 18 victory points. So it's kind of win-win-win. So uh, that uh, in tournament games, are those tiles used? No. So the tournament game is just the base game and one part of the expansion. Okay, then this is what I was going to say, and I get, I'm guessing it's this. The part of the expansion that I would hate to do without is the new way that turn order is determined. Uh, is, that, is that the yeah. one part you're talking about? Yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, I don't like that. Actually. Why not? Uh, because when you play with the board, mm -hmm. anytime you have a turn order that's not just uh, a straight clockwise turn order, uh, it just bogs the game down. Because people are very used to, I will move right after the guy to the right of me moves. Yeah. Uh, and well, go, go ahead, sorry, I cut you off. Uh, well, I was going to say that, uh, and then there's some things where you, your faction selection should be affected by what the person before you has taken. Oh. If the turn order is static. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But basically nobody agrees with me. So <laughs> we had a vote and uh, the variable turn order won by, you know, 90% to 10%. So. Uh, one of the things that we that I tried to do, and this is difficult is tell everybody okay when your turn is done tap in the person after you uh, <laughs> and everybody always forgets because it, it's also like it's so planning intensive and, and in a good way yeah. not necessarily a like I, I find that it's planning intensive but not in an analysis paralysis way that other planning intensive games can be uh, but it's really hard to get people okay 
whoever's next like there always has to be a game caller and invariably i'm the guy who has to do that who's watching the turn order <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah uh how well does terra mystica scale because three to five players... uh, like some... oh, go ahead it's... I mean, it's two, two to five players, but the people playing it with two, they're kind of crazy. Oh, I was going to say, I didn't even realize it was two to five players. I just assumed it was three, I guess. Okay. So so not good uh, for two. How well do you feel it scales with three, four, or five? Yeah, I, I like all of three, four, five. Uh, five is kind of chaotic um, because the, you know, the map doesn't scale up when you add more players. Right. So there's less space and... Uh, it's harder to predict what everybody else will do. But you know, th th those are kind of fun. Uh, anything can happen games. Uh, yeah. But four players is like the sweet spot. I yeah. think everybody agrees. Yeah. Uh, the five players, it just seemed like it, it, there was such a, a different kind of emphasis on how much elbow room people had, and I guess uh, that again was partly because we weren't we weren't really aware of this idea of make sure the neighbors around you that you don't share a spot on that terrain that terraforming wheel uh but it just felt like everybody was hurting for space in a much different way in a five player game yeah yeah uh, and okay if you want to play five player then you probably want the expansion factions in because yeah. it adds <laughs> well no i mean you know that that's where you want people to have more alternatives to pick from right right for example. right we did have, and actually this is who won, in our five-player game, the dwarves who can tunnel so they don't get blocked in the same way as other races. Uh, they're the ones who ran away with the game. Uh, oh, well, that's interesting because dwarves should be super easy to block. Oh, how? Since, uh, he kept, like, going well, under other people, and what? how? Well, so the thing is that dwarves can't use ships, right? Right. So, so they actually are incredibly constrained so if they start for example in the east and in the middle mm -hmm. there's basically just two spots of the whole map where they can connect up those two halves of their empire and that can be super hard to for, for them to race to those spots quickly enough before other other people take them so but i mean that might be something you're just not doing yet uh this kind of blocking other people yeah, we're definitely. No, oh, this, this, yeah, this, this player is doing really well. I only suffer a minor penalty for taking this space that they really want. Right, right. Yeah, that, that's true of a lot of the sort of economic Euro games, isn't it? Is what you do is a lot of times going to depend on what the other guys are doing, even though it might seem like multiplayer solitaire where everyone's just building his or her own tableau. Uh, you kind of need to be aware of other people's economies to block them. And we didn't do a lot of that when we played. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, wish, the... I, I, no. say, I wish I'd talked to you before uh, our last game. <laughs> I feel like I would have fared much better. So, so, but okay, so this is actually the reason I love Terra Mystica so much, mm -hmm. which is that it's not like the typical Euro game where you are just building your tableau, and if there's something in the middle, it's kind of a second thought uh, map that doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, fine, you've got a map, there's stuff there, but it's not really where the game is. Or you just have some, I know, a spreadsheet in the middle, basically. Right. Uh, and it's really hard to interact with that stuff like very well, while this kind of spatially important map gets people into the game and into the competition so much more. And it's not happening in modern Euro games. It used to happen like in the 
golden age in the 90s, like the first golden age, you know, settlers or uh, Carcassonne, stuff like that, which, which were heavily spatial games rather than mathematics games, essentially. Uh, one of my favorite worker placement games, and I think worker placement is one of my least favorite gameplay yeah. mechanics. Uh, one of my favorites is Dominant Species. For even though it's a dominant species is mathematically super intensive and it kind of breaks my head when I try to play it, but I love how it takes all that worker placement dynamic and revolves it around a map control game. Like that map control game is super central to dominant species, even though you're just doing a lot of worker placement stuff. Um, uh, here's a let me ask you this uh, before I let you go, uh, Yuho, what do you do? Obviously, you own a physical copy of Terra Mystica, right? Yeah, of course. How do you store it? Because you obviously have the expansion as well, right? Huh. There's no way that's ever going to fit in one box. Am I correct? I don't even remember how it's stored. I remember that I've got some uh, uh, laser-cut acrylic little things, overlay things for the boards that they definitely don't fit anywhere. So you've been just playing it virtually for so long, I guess. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Like, uh, you know, I've played 400 games of Terra Mystica, maybe 20 or 30 were with the board. Okay, sure, yeah. Uh, but you know, that's how these things go. Anything that has a digital implementation, people play more uh, more with that than on the board game. Right. But they still want the board game, so it's helpful to the publisher. So I don't think there's any way to store Terra Mystica other than putting all the boards and the player mats in the box for the expansion and then all the pieces in the core box. That's If, if anybody knows a better way, I would love to know. <laughs> if, there's, if there's a way to put all of it in one box, I'd, I'd love to know about that. So uh, I think there – oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was, go, go ahead. I was just going to finish up, but yeah, you were going to say you think there are. I thought there was a Korean edition of Terra Mystica that came in one box with the expansion. See, so I... you just need to get the Korean edition and you're all set. Okay, good. Yeah, I'll keep an eye out for that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is the great thing about Euro games, though, is it doesn't matter. A Korean edition wouldn't really look any different. I can't think yeah. of any place that the text exists. Oh, no. The names of the races are in English, and it, it looks like French, right? Is that French? Is, are they German or French? Uh, I guess I it would depend the on English the version, version that I have. Yeah. I, I think the English and French second editions were uh, shared. Because that's odd to me. I'm used to, I'm, I'm used to seeing German. If, there, if there's ever, ever going to be like multilingual text, I'm always assuming it's going to be German. But for whatever reasons, there's, Fre that's, uh, there's French on my copy. Of Terra Mystica. Yeah. Uh, well, Yuho, I, I can safely say that I will probably never play Terra Mystica with you because you are completely out of my league. But Oh, we should have a game. Come uh, on. Uh, yeah, we should, I can tell you exactly how that's going to go. Uh, but I would definitely do it. Like if we were playing for charity, it would be like, for instance, uh, if, if a celebrity was playing basketball against the Harlem Globetrotters or something. Like it, it would just be an exhibition game. You would uh, run run rampant over me. Uh, so uh, Terra Mystica is available at line. Give me again the URL for your implementation of it online. 
terra.snellman.net. Great. Uh, Yuho, thank you so much for hanging out with me today. And I forgot to mention, and I, I should say this every time at the top of the podcast, you're on the forum as Jay Snell. Uh, if anybody That's gets, correct. Yeah, that before. So, all right, thanks for hanging out with me. We'll be seeing you around on, on the forum, Yuho. And uh, we'll talk to everyone in the podcast. Thanks for having me. It was uh, great.